From Impact Fashion, it's Be Impactful, a show about the women making a difference in their own corners of the world. I'm Rifki Itzkowitz, and on today's show, I speak with a passionate therapist about her unusual first job, the jump to starting her private practice, and the things we could all do a little bit better. Rachel Tuckman knows her stuff. She is a licensed mental health counselor who has taken on the hard work of destigmatizing mental health issues and demystifying that ever pervasive diet culture. Her and I first connected after she spoke about unrealistic beauty expectations, particularly on the dating scene. And to say we clicked would be a complete understatement. I grew up in Toronto, Canada, and I am the fifth of six kids. We're all two years apart. Um, so I have three brothers and two sisters. Um, and I was kind of wedged between between the three boys. Um, I was like a tomboy. Um, I was really a mega underachiever in school, like not good in school, was not a strong student, never did well. Um, I just was, you know, I think I was like a typical kid in a lot of ways, but I was always like very... I think very like kind of wise beyond my years. Like people always used to tell me that, that I was like very mature, that I understood people. Um, so I always kind of knew then from the time that I was young that I wanted to be a therapist because I did understand people. I was really like an empath. I really felt people's pain um, and, and happiness. I was always just like very in tune with people's feelings and always very curious about how people worked and how they thought and why people did things. Um, so that was really like, me in a nutshell as a kid. Okay. Now you, I know are a licensed mental health counselor. And one of my favorite things about your Instagram profile is that in the spot where it says your name, it says Rachel Tuckman, LMHC number 004584. And I'm assuming that's your license number, right? Yes. Yes. I love that so much because there are so many people, particularly on social media who just like, talk because they like to hear themselves speak and they're just talking from thin air and they don't know what they're saying and they're not qualified to give advice or they're not qualified to speak about the things that they're speaking about. And I see this a lot in fashion, people giving advice. I'm like, no, that's terrible advice, but okay, you must get driven crazy. The things that you see people giving, you know, quote unquote therapy or quote unquote advice that is really destructive. Yeah. Um, it's really concerning to me. Sometimes I will see people that I feel are not qualified to be discussing the topics they're discussing. Um, and part of my responsibility on social media, and this is something that now that it's kind of like known in the world of psychology and therapy that like social media is an effective tool to break mental health stigma and to spread awareness of mental health um, in general, like now we're kind of, you know, learning the responsible ways to use social media as therapists. So one of the things we learn is that you should put your license number um, in your profile and that you should have disclaimers, right? So whenever I do like an ask me or any of that in my stories, I'll always put a disclaimer of like, Instagram is not therapy. It's not HIPAA compliant. Like we're, you're not my client just because you send me a DM with all your personal information. 
you know, so we have to do what we can to be responsible to protect people and kind of do no harm. Um, and I think as consumers, people just need to be responsible to know when you're following someone's account and they're talking about a certain topic, don't just take it at face value that they know what they're talking about. Ask questions to yourself. Are they licensed, are, you know, to be talking about this? Are they a therapist? Do they have experience in this area? Or did they just like read a book on the weekend and now they're talking about what they read in the book? Like if they're not an expert or someone who treats that specific problem or someone who deals with that specific thing, you should not be taking their word as like the expert opinion, you know, so kind of know who you're looking at and know who you're paying attention to and know what you're listening to. That's your responsibility. So as much as sometimes I will get frustrated when I see someone who I'm like, like, who are you to be talking about this? Like it's, it's dangerous even and irresponsible. Then I kind of have to like take a step back and say, but I, I'm not responsible for that. The person who's looking at this is responsible to like use their head and use their brain and to kind of, you know, step back and say like, wait, this is nice information that she, you know, he or she is giving me, but like, are they the person to be telling me this? You know? So we kind of have to remember to be responsible as consumers of, you know, social media. We have to make sure that we're being responsible with the content that we are taking in. For sure. Uh, Can you just, I certainly do not know this. What is a licensed mental health counselor in relation to like, are you a type of, I know that you're a type of therapist. Are you like a psychiatrist Mm -hmm. light? How does, what is it? Where does it fall into the realm of mental health? Sure. Okay. So a psychiatrist, just like, so everyone knows because people will sometimes call me a psychiatrist. A psychiatrist is an MD. They are a doctor. They went to medical school. A psychiatrist, they will, they um, prescribe medication right? So a psychiatrist will work hand in hand with a therapist to be treating mental health problems, mental illnesses. So when you go to a psychiatrist and you're getting medication, they're treating you as a doctor, right? So it's a medical degree. It's not a mental health degree. It's a medical degree with mental health training. Um, And that's why you can't just go to a psychiatrist alone. That's not replacement therapy. So you can go to your psychiatrist and get medication for maybe your anxiety and your depression. But I always say like, you also need to be at the same time, be seeing a therapist so that you're getting the tools for the the depression and the anxiety or whatever else is going on. Um, It should be complementary. It shouldn't be the only thing that you do. And same thing, if if you're coming to therapy and you have really debilitating anxiety or depression or some kind of something that does need psychiatric medical, you know, intervention, then you should be going to the psychiatrist also, and the two should be in touch, you know? So I will, if I have a client who's on medication, I will be in touch with their psychiatrist, you know, to talk about, oh, maybe we can lower the dosage. Maybe they need a higher dosage. Maybe we can think about tapering them off now, whatever it is, um, if they need to come off of it. But that's, that's a psychiatrist. So, so a licensed you, mental health counselor. Yeah. Right. So what's a psychologist then? Is that another right. one for what you do? So, so a psychologist then is a PhD or a PsyD. So that's a doctoral level degree. And that is someone who's been to school for five years and they did a dissertation and they've earned this doctoral title. And so now they are a psychologist, meaning so they they do what I do, but they have a doctoral degree and they might do a little bit more in terms of like testing or that kind of stuff. Um, so it's a clinical degree and 
and that's what they do. But I cannot call myself a psychologist because I don't have a doctoral degree. My degree is a licensed mental health counselor. So that's a master's degree in mental health counseling. It's two years. Um, and then when I finished that, I had 3,000 clinical hours that I had to finish, supervised. And then I have continuing ed credits. So it's not a master's in psychology because the master's in psychology, it's really like not very useful unless you're going to go on and to do something else with that. So it's a master's in mental health counseling, which means I get this degree and then I have to become licensed in order to work. Um, and again, in order to be licensed, I need to finish supervised clinical hours in a clinical setting. Um, and that's what I did. So I went to FERCAF at YU at Yeshiva University and I completed my master's degree there. And then I finished my clinical hours um, in jail. That was like the first job I had out of college. Jail like like prison? Yeah, uh, not prison. Jail is different than prison. Um, I'm learning so many new things today. (laughs) I know, right? (laughs) Okay, talk me through it. What's the difference? Right. So prison is where you go if you have like a sentence that's a year or above. It's a long-term sentence. Um, Prison is basically, a jail, sorry, is a holding facility. So it's either for people who have sentences a year or less, or they're awaiting trial. So I did have some clients who were in jail for eight years because they were waiting for trial um, and they hadn't been sentenced to prison. But then I also had people, you know, who were there for shoplifting. So they were there for, you know, 30 days and then they left. So jail is a a holding facility. It's like a temporary year or less, um, meaning you have a sentence for a year or less or while you're waiting for trial. Okay, so, so my first what job out was of your grad look school was there. in jail. What was your work there? Like, what what was your job to do? I, that sounds scary to me. Me coming from a, like, I have a very normal upgrim, upbringing. I come from a very sheltered environment. I don't want to be anywhere near jail or prison or anything like that. What was that job like? So it, it was very high stress and it was scary. I remember the first two weeks I was there, I had nightmares every night. Um, it was, it's just intense. And I was actually working in the women's facility. And I remember the first day that I got there to the job, you have to like drive over a bridge because the jail, it's Rikers Island. It's literally on an island. They have to drive over a bridge to get to the parking lot. So I had to go and get like a parking pass so that I could go over this bridge. And I remember I went up to the window and I, the officer's there and I'm like, oh, you know, I need a pass. I'm working in the women's, I'm, you know, I'm starting my first job at the facility. Like, oh, we, where are you working? Which facility? I'm like, oh, the Rose M. Singer. He's like, with the ladies? I'm like, yeah. He's like, okay, good luck with that. I was like, what, what do you mean? Why? What do you, what do you mean? What? You know, I was like, what, why is he saying that? And he, and he said, so I was like, why, why are you saying that? And he's like, you might like maybe bleep this, but he's like, those bitches be crazy. And I was like, oh, oh my God. Oh my God. I was terrified. <laughs> oh so God. I was like, what does that even mean? And then I got there and, and the women's facility is known for being a lot more intense and violent and scary than the other facilities. So, um, and it was, it was pretty intense. It happened to be, I really liked it when I was there. I was a mental health counselor there. So I worked with First, I did intake. So when new, you know, inmates would come in, um, I would do like their paperwork. And if they needed mental health services, then I was, you know, responsible for making sure they got the services that they needed, that they saw the psychiatrist. And I was responsible to make sure they had the proper housing so that they were on a unit that was like appropriate for them based on their needs. Um, And then eventually I was put on a specialty unit where we were doing DBT, dialectical behavior therapy. And it was a program that was funded by the Department of Mental Health. And they were looking to see if 
they used like therapy, right? Like intensive therapy, DBT therapy, while people were incarcerated, if it would reduce recidivism. So I don't know, you know, meaning, meaning like if it would make, if it would make it possible that people wouldn't come back, that they would be rehabilitated and not come back to jail. Right. Did it work Um, out of curiosity? Do you have any idea? So I don't know what ended up happening with the study because I left um, like midway and I don't even know if they had continued funding for it. So I don't even know what ended up happening with the study. Happened to be that some of the women that were my clients did not come back to prison, but I think that also they were there for like things that they weren't going to be reoffending. You know, like I had a lot of people on my unit, which was actually interesting now that I think about it. I never even thought about it, but a lot of the inmates that were on my unit were women that were there because they had murdered their um, boyfriends who, you know, were abusing them. So they were in domestic violence situations and it came to a point where they felt so threatened um, that they ended up killing their boyfriend or spouse. Right. Um, That's a, it's a situational thing. It's not like a rampage. Yeah. They had no prior, yeah. They had no prior criminal history. Like they were really, you know, just in a bad situation. So those people didn't come back, you know? Um, But so I don't even know what ended up happening with the study because it would have been interesting to see because I was literally like I was running two groups a day. I was giving them individual therapy. It was a lot. It was 25 women. It was really exhausting. It was a ton of work. And that's part of why I couldn't stay anymore. It was just so. I, I imagine know, that the draining. burnout rates, the burnout rates must have been so high. Yes. Turnover there is really high. People don't stay for long. I actually have a friend who I helped him get a job there and he's been there for like 12 years now. And I don't know how he stays there. (laughs) Wow. But he's like, you know, he said they move him around to different buildings. He's in a different position now. So he's been there, but I don't know how he does it. I I could not. By the end, I was like, I was done. I was done. I was done. Wow. I I can imagine. I'm exhausted just listening to it for the couple minutes that we are. And I can't imagine actually, you know, living it. How long were you there? So I was there for just under two years. Like I left right before my two year anniversary. That's a, that's a nice long time. <laughs> that counts. Yeah, wow. Really, yeah. And then, yeah. so then how did you, what's your current practice like and how did you get there? So my current practice is in Cedarhurst and I work with kids and I work with adults and I work with women with infertility post hysterectomy. Um, I always wanted to do private practice. I knew this was like something that was a goal of mine. Um, I was always just like scared. Like I liked the security of like having a boss and having a paycheck and, you know, they take out your taxes and you get your health insurance. And I just always like that, you know, not feeling like responsible. Like at the end of the day, I leave and like, you know, the boss has to take care of everything else. Um, and, but I always knew that like, I wanted to do my own thing. I wanted to, you know, like work with people and choose the clients that I wanted and not always have to be handed a caseload and have my own schedule also. Like I wanted to be home when I was working in that jail. Like I had really long hours. I wasn't around. I was stressed out. Um, I just really wanted flexibility so that I could like be home for my kids. So I eventually, you know, like I started working, I worked in base Ezra for a little bit at, for OHEL. Um, it's an organization that has housing for adults with um, developmental disabilities. So I was like a, a therapist in the home where I would come up with behavior plans and, you know, help support staff to deal with challenging behavior and, you know, just make sure that in general, like the residents were, you know, in a good, healthy space. Um, and then I started working in schools, working with kids. And then um, after I had my third daughter, I decided I was going to take some time off and I was really going to focus on like building my private practice. 
because I was like a little bit doing it on the side. I had a three client, four clients, like I didn't have much. And then, you know, after I had my daughter, my husband was like, all right, like it's crunch time. Like you're doing this, like it's now or never, you know, he knew it was something I always wanted to do. I was always making excuses and he was like, okay, like now you're doing it, you know, like I'm not going to let you run away from it this time. Um, and so I, you know, eventually I started like seeing more clients. And then a space opens up. I was subletting a space from another therapist. He was like letting me use his office when he wasn't there. Um, but, you know, it was good at first, but eventually like I wanted to grow and see more clients. But when you're renting space from someone else, like it's hard because they have their schedule and you can't always, you know, you don't have as much flexibility. So I saw this opportunity and office space opened up near me and I, I really did not have a lot of clients. And again, my husband was like, you're taking the space. Like, it doesn't matter. We'll figure it out, you know? Um, and so I signed this lease and I took the space and that's when I started really like pushing myself and hustling to, you know, I created my Instagram page and I started putting myself out there and like posting and showing who I was as a therapist. So, you know, my page started as something that I was trying to kind of like, market myself and show people like, here I am, I'm a therapist. Do you like what I have to say? Do I resonate with you? Then, you know, come give me a call, come to my office. And it really worked. I built my practice within three months. I was full, like I had a full caseload and I couldn't take on more. Um, and now I just like, I just kept going because I saw that it was resonating with so many people and so helpful and so validating. And it was actually like really helpful for me. I feel like in a lot of ways, my page is therapy for me. Like it's just a great way to like share my thoughts and feelings and put goodness out there in the world and, you know, try to influence change for people that may not necessarily ever make it into my office or a therapist's office in general. Um, and so that's kind of where I am now that I have this practice that I was waiting and waiting for a lot of years to do. And I could have done it years ago, but I was just so scared. And, you know, eventually I got that final push. Like you, it's important to have those people, those cheerleaders who believe in you more than you believe in yourself. And thank God I have that. Um, and then I just did it and I pushed past all my fear and all my discomfort. And thank God it really like worked out for me in the end. That is so great. It's so interesting because until now, I never considered therapist with a private practice as an entrepreneur, but you're 100% right. It's you have to get clients and it's a business and you need to pay the lease and make sure everyone's, yeah. you know, the payroll and health insurance and all of that. It's, it's all yeah. of those same responsibilities that come with running yeah. a business. And it's so interesting yeah. that you did it with three kids because for me, yeah. I started my business when I was uh, 21. I was still in college full-time. I started it on the side and my theory was if I don't do it now, then I'm not going to do it until I'm 45 because I'm right. like, I'm either going to do it now or I'm going to do it once all of my kids are like up and grown and, and, and you know, and, and they're taken care of. And that part of my life is kind of finished. And I can't imagine doing it in the thick of it, just like you did. Right. That's, oh, yeah. that's, that's so stressful. And the truth is that your page does put out so much. It's just a breath of fresh air. I really do encourage um, everyone to go and follow Rachel. And we're going to link her page in the show notes. Um, it's, you know, there's sometimes when you're scrolling through a feed and you see just, you know, model after model after model who is, you know, airbrushed or standing at exactly the right angle so that her butt doesn't stick out too much or anything mm -hmm. like that. And then there's a post from you that says something like, it amazes me that women look at the sky and think, wow, God is so amazing. And then they look in the mirror and think, ugh, as if God didn't create both. Yeah. And it's so true. And it's yeah. especially because there's so many there's so many things about social media that can bring 
people down. And it's something that I'm actually very conscious to not do. Like I tell people what I suck at all the time. I'll be like, I, I I suck at getting up in the morning. My day does not start before 930 if I'm lucky because I, cause I just don't get up. It's not what I do. Like everyone has this image of the entrepreneur who gets up at at 4.30 and then they answer all their emails and then they go for a run and they come back, they take a shower, they wake up their spouse so lovingly, make a beautiful breakfast, sit and talk about their hopes and dreams for 45 minutes, kiss him goodbye when he goes off to work and then start their day running. It's like, hell no, honey. (laughs) Like We drag our asses out of bed at about 9.30. We get our day going. And, And I tell people that because I think it's important to realize that you're only seeing snippets of people's days and you're seeing the um, the highlights, you know, you really are seeing, and if I feel like crap, I'm just not, I'm not going to go on because I don't want to talk to people when I feel like crap. So you don't see that. And then, and, and sometimes, you know, you, you go and you scroll through a feed and you see everyone in their highlights. And then there's Rachel with that, you know, truth bomb of, you know, everyone's feeling this way. We're all in the same boat and, and we're all just trying to do our best. And that's such, it's a really special thing that you're doing there. Yeah, thank you. That's what I that's what I want because I feel like social media can be like awesome and then it could be like terrible. It really all depends on who you follow. So I assume the majority of people that are following me are probably following like the same accounts. Like the I'm assuming they're all following like the same people. So I kind of like have an idea of who's in their feed. So I'll really base my post based on like I know what's going on in people's feeds today. Like I have a feeling they need to hear this, you know? So I kind of want to mitigate a lot of like the negativity until either someone learns to unfollow someone or they learn to realize, you know, I say like this is kind of one of my upcoming posts, like real life, R-E-E-L is not real life. Like stop looking at people's highlights and their posed pictures and their edited pictures and their edited posts and, and start thinking like that's what you're supposed to do or that's what your life is supposed to look like. It's not real. And no matter how much we say it, people don't internalize it. They they say, like, I know it's not real. I know it's not real. Yeah, but then you're still looking at that post and it still has the same effect on your brain. Even though maybe rationally you know it's not real, you're still getting that feeling because you're right. still getting that initial like, oh, in your chest. And then maybe your brain kicks in and says like, Oh, but you know, it's not real, but you know, it's fake, but you know, it's not, you know, she doesn't really have that. You know, he doesn't really do that or, you know, but it doesn't matter. You had that initial feeling and it released all those chemicals in your body and it made a reaction and, you know, like the damage is done. So why don't we just be more careful about let's curate our feed. Let's be more careful about who we're following and what we're looking at because it does matter and it does make an impact. And don't say, oh, I love that, that feed. It's so cute. Oh, they make me laugh. He's so funny. He's this, he, she's that. It's not making you laugh because really, if you think about it, like, you know, it has a negative impact on you. So just don't follow it. Stop giving attention to these accounts that are harmful, you know, right? carry your feet. You're in control of that. For sure. It's something that I actually became a little bit more aware of recently. Um, Just, you know, I actually stopped following a lot of other businesses because it was making, it was stressing me out. It really was. It was making me feel like every time I was comparing my posts to these other businesses posts and they sell completely different products or they're talking to a completely different audience or, you know, they invested a heck ton of money in really expensive photography and videography that to be perfectly honest, probably means that they're not making as much like profit 
as I am. Um, Or, you know, and and all of those things get lost when you're just looking at someone's beautiful thing and it just looks beautiful and it just makes you want it makes you want to be like that so hard and it makes you thinking like, oh, maybe I should be spending five times as much as I am now on my videography. You know, maybe I should, you know, hire that person or something like that. Um, right. And it really messes with your head. But I think that's a really important point also that you have to look at the, the people that you're following or the businesses that you're following and say like, is this inspiring me to build my business and to be who I need to be as an entrepreneur Or is it making me feel bad and discouraging me and making me feel like, oh, I'll never get there. I'm jealous. Right. But then looking at that, like if you do feel jealous again, looking at that jealousy, like, can I change the jealousy to motivation and be like, you know what? Look at them. They're, they're kicking ass. Like they're doing awesome. And they're like, look at all the things that they're doing to put their business in motion. And like, I'm going to figure out what works for me. I'm going to, you know, try to do those same things or, you know, this resonates with me that I'm going to try that. And, and really like, trying to figure out what makes sense for you in terms of building your business. And, you know, for me, I follow a lot of other therapists who it happens to be that like what for me in the Jewish and religious world, there's not a lot of people that do what I do, but out there in the world that's not Jewish, not religious, like there's so many therapists that are like amazing and have massive followings and are really doing incredible work. So I could look at, you know, some of the accounts that I follow, like the holistic psychologist or Lisa Oliveira, And I could be like, oh, I'm such a loser. Like the holistic psychologist has a million followers and look what she's doing. And she's on these like the Lewis Host podcast and she's like killing it in that world. And I could feel bad about myself or I could say, oh my God, she's so inspirational. I love how authentic she is. She's so real. I love her posts. I love how, you know, she's so humble and how she stays grounded and how she focuses on what she's good at. And she doesn't try to be someone she's not. And I can look at all of those things that I admire and say like, it's inspiration for me to stay true to myself and to also evaluate, like, what are my goals? Do I want to be the holistic psychologist with a million followers? And no, not really. Like, that's not, that's not what I'm looking to do, you know? So it also kind of like helps me to stay grounded in like, what are my goals? Like if I'm, if I'm feeling jealous that she has a million followers, then I should say like, but do I want a million followers? I don't want the attention she's getting. Like with all that attention comes a lot of like yucky stuff that I don't even know if I would be able to deal with. I'd rather be like, small and just be within my community. And, you know, again, my goal is really just to like, you know, just keep my practice going, keep my name out there and, you know, teach people. But again, like I have like a specific group of people that I want to teach. Like I don't want to be big, you know, so it's always important also like to check yourself if you're feeling threatened or intimidated or jealous or less than ask yourself, like, why do I feel this way? Is this like valid that I really want to be in that position? Or am I just like, having like a bad moment where I feel inadequate, you know? Right. So I think that's, but that's a great point. Like follow the businesses and people and accounts that inspire you. you no, know, not the ones that make you feel like you're never going to make it and you're never going to do well. And you're not as good as them. Like if you're in that space, like it's better to maybe mute them for a while or just unfollow them altogether. Yeah. No, I'm a big fan of the mute button, particularly just because yeah. of, pro tip everybody if you mute someone they don't know but if you and if you unfollow them they don't know either but they do get a notification if you refollow them so when you if you do for whatever reason need to refollow and it will happen sometimes that i'll unfollow someone and then um, me and that person will decide to work together and it's appropriate for me to be following them and then it's a little it's a little bit of an awkward notification that they'll get you know rifki started following you oh she hasn't been following me this whole time so yeah if you mute and unmute they don't get any notification whatsoever at any point and i highly recommend it 
Um, yes. Yeah, it's it's definitely a, a good way to just take care of yourself, you know, to to yeah. safeguard your own mental health, to safeguard your create yeah. create your little bubble where you can just feel okay. And I think that there's nothing wrong yeah. with that. You mentioned yeah. that you're that you don't want to be big. Do you are there specific changes that you wish the Jewish community and maybe specifically the Orthodox Jewish community? I'm assuming that's where your clients fall mostly. Yep. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Is, are, what, are, what are some of the changes that if you had a magic wand and you could wave it today that you could make within your community? So I would really like, like really my goal is I just want to facilitate more discussion about sensitive topics. I want to create more awareness of issues and I want people to like want change. So like at the most basic level, I really want people to learn to be like, like really just better, more kind more gentle parents. Like that's the first thing because our kids are the next generation. So we need to make sure that we are doing our best. Every kid is going to have some kind of little T trauma. They're going to have something. I know my kids are going to grow up and they're going to be like, my mom was whatever. They're going to have something. We, I cannot be perfect. I understand that. But I want to, you know, kind of like try to make the damage like as, as minimal as possible. So if we can, as human beings, learn to be stronger, kinder parents, and that means dealing with our own stuff and knowing what our what our traumas were. Maybe they were big T's, maybe they were little T traumas. Like we need to be aware of that, then we can be better parents and we can then, you know, start like kind of making waves to make this world a better place in terms of creating better adults, kinder people, a world that's just like healthier overall and facilitating discussion. And that means talking about mental health, talking about with our kids when they're young, talking about sexuality, talking about their bodies, talking about sexual abuse, talking about, you know, um, boundaries, talking about consent, talking about addiction, just letting, letting the world, letting your kids know, letting the world know, like we understand that there are issues out there and that not discussing them doesn't make them go away right? The best prevention is discussion and is awareness. So we have to just be more open-minded and especially in the Jewish community, like it's getting better definitely in the modern Orthodox community. I can't speak for other communities um, because I don't work in them so much, but also like I don't live in them. So, you know, yes, I have some clients who are in, you know, the ultra-Orthodox community and they are more open-minded, but as a whole, is the ultra-Orthodox community more open-minded? No, you know? So, but that's not my goal. Like I'm not trying to work in that community. I just want to work in the community that I'm in um, because I feel like anyway, that's where my voice will be heard. Like I'm not going to be heard in that community because they don't want to hear from me necessarily, you know? So right. I just feel you like can't you teach someone just, who's not open to it. Yeah, no. And, and, you know, I, I respect that. Like I'm not their people and that's fine. Like they're not, you know, um, they don't need to hear from me. Let them hear from their leaders and that's fine. And anyone who does want to hear from me, again, they reach out to me. But I think my goal is just in the modern Orthodox Jewish community. Um, and again, I mean, even if there's, I have people who follow me that are not Jewish and that a lot of what I say resonates with them and that's great. Um, but I want our community to just be more open to discuss difficult topics. And I think that that's, and to acknowledge that like Jewish people have these problems too. We're not immune. We're human. At the end of the day, Jewish or not, we're human. And this is part of the human condition to have sadness and to have pain and to have sorrow and to have, 
you know, addictions and to have mental illness and to have family problems and divorces and abuse. And it happens to everyone. It's not just like, you know, only one kind of person. So I think that it's important that we recognize that and that we're accepting that and that we are then proactive and we say, okay, we know that, you know, these things can happen. Now, what do we do to prevent them? And what do we do to make sure that if it does happen, that we're dealing with it properly, you know, and that we're making sure that everybody is, you know, healing and and being taken care of in the right way. So that's really what I want to do. I just want to like facilitate discussion and change, you know, just more open-mindedness and, you know, being in the real world, understanding like we're not immune, you know? Right. No, it's, it's true. I think that there's, it is certainly something that our community struggle with, which is just, we, we all live really close to each other. We live in these really tight knit communities. And I think that's great, but it also means that we have this instinct to hide all of our problems because we see each other so often, you know, you're running into someone at synagogue every single week. You all shop in the same three grocery stores. You're always running into each other. And that makes it, that makes it kind of natural to want to close up and pretend like everything's okay all the time. But the truth is that it's not, and it's not going to be okay all the time. And that's, that's okay. And being more open about that can really help everyone. Like you said, just deal with their stuff, whatever that stuff is. Yeah. Yeah. And one of the topics of shame, right? Exactly. It's getting rid of shame. That's the best way to put it. One of the topics that you, um, that you speak about a lot. And that was actually the way that we kind of met was dieting and diet culture. Now, um, Mm -hmm. for anyone who doesn't know, I don't really, I don't speak so much about diet culture just because I'm not an expert. I don't really know that much about it. And I'm a big believer in everyone doing whatever feels good to them. And I know people who have dieted for decades I guess you could say yeah. successfully, you know, they, they've, ke- they've kept their weight off. Um, are they necessarily the most happy person? Probably not. Um, you know, yeah. I've got like a, a smattering of five people that I'm thinking of in my brain and uh, personally, I'd rather eat the cake. That's just me. Right. Um, right. and part of why, um, part of how impact fashion really blew up was because I made it a size inclusive brand. And the more research right. that I did into this, into, the, the lack of, avail- of availability of clothes above a certain size, particularly in the modest community, um, and that's mm-hmm. across all religious spaces, and then yeah. how that feeds into this incessant need to diet, to make yourself smaller, to be mm-hmm. below a certain size, to constantly be watching what you're eating, to constantly be talking about what you're eating, um, you know, to constantly be trying the new bars or shakes or whatever meal replacement thing that that you're doing and how that really how how it was something that I had internalized also so can you explain to me a little bit what what is diet culture um and and what's your feeling on it how do you approach it so diet culture is basically the idea that people who are living in smaller bodies are like morally superior to people in bigger bodies and so we need to do everything we can to shrink our bodies And that means restricting foods, labeling foods as good or bad, exercising as a form of shrinking ourselves. It has nothing to do with health and everything to do with appearance. So um, basically then what that leads people to do is, is it leads them to engage in all kinds of behaviors like 
going on, you know, keto and this diet and that diet and, you know, excessive exercise, not for health, but because they had a donut yesterday or being, oh my God, I'm so happy it's the fast. Like I can't, I need to like stop eating because I'm like so fat. I can't wait to using fat as a negative descriptor. Um, just being obsessed with weight and looking at other people and then judging their personalities and their morals based on how they look. So I know for me, I am someone who is in recovery from diet culture. Like I was even on a diet up till last year and I'm not someone who's, you know, I have thin privilege. I've been thin my whole life, but just like you don't, you know, just like someone who's heavy is not necessarily not healthy. Someone who's thin is not necessarily not dieting. So diet culture was very much something that I have been influenced by and we're all influenced by it. Sometimes we don't even realize how much. And because now I'm on this journey, I see how it like twisted my thinking and, and really like influenced me in such a negative way. But um, I, you know, was on diets and, you know, not, not even necessarily like restricting so much, but I was on a diet last year where I was restricting, but always growing up, I had for sure disordered eating, not eating disorder, but disordered eating. So it would be that I would like be upset. Oh, I can't have that food or I can't have this food or I would like not eat at certain times or, you know, I would have only small portions because I was afraid of food or whatever it is, just really not, um, not a healthy approach to, to diet. And I don't mean diet in terms of restricting. I mean, diet in terms of what I was eating. Um, and I was just never taught like proper nutrition and I would exercise because I was afraid of being fat. I wasn't exercising because it's healthy and it's good for my body. And I, you know, want to try to, you know, be strong and live a long life. It was always like as a form of like, Oh my God, I can't get fat. Like I had pizza yesterday. I need to go to the gym. So I eventually started learning about diet culture through social media, which is again, I love social media for this very reason, because I stumbled upon it on Tiffany Rowe. Hey, Tiffany Rowe. She's, um, on Instagram, you should definitely follow her. She talks about it a lot because she is someone who recovered from an eating disorder. She had anorexia and bulimia, and she talks about diet culture all the time. And then from her, I found so many other pages that were talking about it. And then I learned about Evelyn Triboli, who is one of the people who um, has written about intuitive eating. And then I just started learning about like our unhealthy approach to food and our bodies and how damaging it is. And being that I'm raising three girls and one of them is in those years now, she's a teenager that this is coming up a lot for her friends that they're constantly talking about it. And they're, they're engaging in so much disordered eating and their body image is so like damaged and, and awful that I was like, I can't like, I need to do something to fix this. Like I, I can't let this like continue. I, I can't let this go on. So I started learning more about it. And of course, the more I learned about it, the more I started changing myself and realizing how damaged I was. Um, and then I started, you know, teaching other people about it on my social media and my Instagram. And it's become something that people have like messaged me and they're like, holy moly, like I never realized this. Like I never understood how like messed up this is, you know, like I was at a friend this weekend at a meal and like all anyone was talking about was like, diet culture stuff like oh I can't eat that it's so bad for me oh my nutritionist said like no carbs oh I'm on a high fat whatever diet like you know and sh and they're like oh my god like I never you know it's so crazy how we're like it's all the time in our face you know and we don't even realize it's become so normal for us to be talking like that so I really just want to like undo that culture right are there ways that you see this kind of thing show up in your practice with your patients yes very much um, I mean, so I see it a lot with 
kids, like the young, I would say like the young, like eight or nine years old, it starts coming up. More girls than boys, but you know, I'm fat. I'm all my, you know, I don't like, I'm embarrassed. I don't want to bear a bathing suit. My parents, my mom says I shouldn't eat that. My mom has me on a diet. And then I have parents who reach out to me and they're like, my, my kid is chubby. Like, what do I do? And I'm like, what do you mean? What do you do? Like, are you looking for me to tell you, put them on a diet? Not happening. You know? Right. So my answer is usually you need to work on, on acceptance and you need to work on just making sure that they're healthy and happy. And that doesn't mean putting them on a diet because putting them on a diet doesn't make them healthy. They need to be active and they need to be, you know, being fed adequately. And kids that are growing, we should not be trying to shrink them. It's normal for kids to gain anywhere between 10 and 50 to 60 pounds while they're growing. So yeah, they're going to get a little pudgy when they're, you know, going through puberty years or even when they're little, you know, but if we just leave them alone and we don't put them on diets and they've done studies, there's hundreds and hundreds of studies that show that if you put your child on a diet when they're young, you increase their risk for gain, being overweight or obese and having eating disorders. So it'll just come back to bite you. You're so scared your kid is going to be, you know, fat. You're guaranteeing that they're going to be fat when they're older if you continue to pick on their eating and make them feel insecure about their bodies and make them feel like you don't love them because of how they look. So just don't do that. So it comes up in my practice when I have a parent who will call me and say like, you know, my kid doesn't stop eating. Like, can you help? First of all, I'm not a dietitian, so that's definitely not my arena. But in terms of like the mental piece, like the emotional piece, like there's nothing that I can do. I can work with you, the parent, to learn to accept and to learn to model healthy behaviors and to learn to, you know, deal with them so that you don't traumatize them and give them an issue. But I'm not going to tell your kid like, you know, you need to be, maybe you shouldn't have noodles for dinner. Maybe you should have a salad. Not happening. I don't believe in that. Right. I don't even believe adults should be doing that. (laughs) (laughs) Well, what, what would you say to someone who could come back at you and say, listen, I get that we don't need all need to be a size two, but once you get above a certain size, it's really not healthy. You know, you really need to start taking care of yourself. Once you get above a certain size and for every person, I think that certain size is a little bit different. It really becomes a matter of, you know, you need to take this weight off if you want to be there for your kids, for your grandkids, for your whatever. Um, What would you say to someone in that situation? So that's like something I hear all the time. People will be like, fine, you know, it's okay. But like, what about someone who's really obese or really overweight? Like you can't argue that they, they shouldn't lose weight. So my answer is always, look, first of all, what does that mean? Really obese or really overweight? I don't, what does that mean? You know, like what weight are we deciding is really obese and really overweight? That's number one. But number two is like, we have this like death by fatness, right? We have this thing like obesity kills, right? And that's very much like a government campaign like that we've kind of been like brainwashed to think that like, you know, fat is like disease promoting and unhealthy and terrible. But if you look at like research and actual studies, like there's really no evidence to show that obese people or severely overweight people have like real serious health issues. A lot of obese people are actually healthy and they don't suffer from the diseases that we blame on their weight. Um, And a lot of people who are normal weight are more prone to cardiac and metabolic abnormalities that we say are because of obesity, you know, and they've actually done studies that show that a lot of the problems that they notice in, in, in people who are of higher weight, they didn't have necessarily 
like their whole lives of being heavy. They had them because of weight stigma and because of fat phobia. So it ends up like because they're heavy their whole lives, they don't go to their doctors and they don't go to the gym because they're ashamed because they know people are judging them and they don't necessarily have access to, you know, the, the right foods for them because they don't have access to proper, you know, nutrition or education. And so those things are the things that cause you know, the, the health issues. It's not necessarily the obesity itself. It's the shame and the stigma that we put on them. So if we would just stop doing that and stop judging and being like, well, you have to admit if you're 350 pounds, you have a problem. Where's the research that shows you that? It's just not true. It's just not true. There's, all the research shows you the exact opposite. They've looked at people that were considered obese and they saw that they had better heart health than people that weren't, that they live longer than thin people. Right. And some and some of the theories are and it might even be like a little laughable that like if a fat person falls, there's more to cushion them. Right. than a thin person, <laughs> which is kind of cra- like we laugh, but like the fat is. I mean, it them. makes sense. <laughs> right. Like it a thin makes person sense. Can fall, their bones are going to be more fragile. It's closer to the ground. There's not cushioning. A fat person has a better chance of, you know, surviving that fall and doing better. So, you know, yes. Is there unhealthy fat? For sure. There are places in your body where higher levels of fat do put you at risk for, for health conditions, but that can be on a thin person too. So it's not about like someone who's overall big and weighs a lot that they're unhealthy. You cannot determine that. There's a way to determine health and it's not through a scale and it's not through looking at a person. So something that I've learned and that I really see that my biases have changed is that when I look at someone now who's in a bigger body, I don't have those judgments anymore. It used to be, and I only noticed it recently, you know, but it used to be when I would see someone fat, I would be like, oh, like they don't, they probably don't work out and like they don't eat healthy. I'm like, oh, it's pretty pathetic. Now, oh, okay, it's just the person. Like I don't right. have those biases anymore. And I'm so, I'm so glad that I'm like recovering from that, you know? And I always like say, I'm like, I apologize for the things I said or did when I was in diet culture. Like I really believed all of these things that fat people are lazy and clearly they're not taking care of themselves because if they were, they wouldn't look that way. They just can't control. They're not eating properly, but it's not about that. You can be eating better than I eat and be bigger than me, you know, and be healthier than me. You know, I go to the gym with people that don't look like me. They're bigger than me. Some are smaller than me and they're killing it. They're in better shape than I am, you know, so I'm going to think the girl that's in a bigger body, she can't do the gym class. I'm like almost vomiting and she's like, you know, doing her 50th burpee. Like it has nothing to do with that. And that's something you learn. The more you learn about diet culture, the more you look at the research, the more you see the science you see, it's not true. And just because your doctor tells you, oh, you need to lose weight. Guess what? Doctors also have fat phobia and weight stigma. They're not dietitians. They're not experts in this area. They're they have a very specific skill. They are there to treat illnesses and disease. They are not there to deal with nutrition and health. And they can't tell you what to eat to have a healthy body. They would have to refer you to a dietitian, just like they're not mental health professionals, right? right. You go to them and you're telling them you have signs of depression. They're not going to start giving you a therapy session and prescribing meds. They shouldn't be doing that. They should refer you to a therapist. So the same thing here. They can tell you, oh, I measured on the scale and it says you're overweight. And, you know, that means you're not healthy. No, that's not true. So doctors can also make mistakes and they're not perfect. So that's important that you should know that and you should advocate for yourself in the doctor's office. You know, if they're telling you, oh, well, you know, you have this problem, maybe it's because you're heavy. Say to your doctor, what if I wasn't heavy? What would you tell me? And I had the same problem. What would you tell me? What, what should I do to help the problem? Let's try that before you start telling me I need to lose weight. 
you know, wow. advocate. Don't right. be shy. Right. Yeah, no, it, I think that's also important just to note in general. If you are at a doctor and you think that there is something wrong, you should you should say that. <laughs> you know, you know, if a doctor is like, oh, it's just a cold, it's just a virus, it's something, be like, can you run one more test? Can you do one more thing? That's that's also just yeah. important to to note. And you're right, that bias in medicine is it's important to be aware of it. It's also right. something important to note that women are often taken less seriously in a doctor's office. You know, a woman who is con- yeah. who is complaining of chest pain that is consistent yeah. with a heart attack will often be considered hysterical or emotional or, you know, something of the sort that can prevent her from getting the care that she needs for whatever it is. So right. it is important to be aware of that. I have learned yeah. so much from you today, <laughs> Rachel. Um, and I, I really thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me. If someone wants to learn more about you, get in touch with you for anything and everything, how can they do that? Well, definitely follow me on Instagram. Um, you can contact me there. You can. Also, I'm also on Facebook a little bit. It's kind of like the same content I'm putting on Facebook. You can follow me there. And then off, my office in Searhurst, if you're in the area and you want to get in touch, then email me and and you know, we can set up a phone consult and see if you want to come in. Okay. And we're going to put all of that information in the show notes. The last thing that I want to ask you, Rachel, is in your life, in your work, in the the good things that you're doing on social media and in the real world, what does it mean to you to make an impact? To make an impact, it means that I just have people think. I just want them to think. If I can get people to kind of break out of what they're typically used to doing and thinking and kind of consider another way and maybe try to do better for themselves, then that's all I want. I always say, I don't want to be an influencer. I want to be someone who inspires. I just want people to think about what makes sense for them in their lives and what would make them happy. I don't need them to do what I say or what I do. I want them to do what works best for them. So if I can just get people to think and to kind of change some old patterns in a way that will make them feel more fulfilled and happy, then I've done what I wanted to do and and I can go to sleep and, you know, be a happy person. That's so great. Thank you so much, Rachel. I really appreciate you being on here today. Thanks for having me. Thanks for taking the time to listen today. There's lots of great information in the show notes, including the Instagram accounts Rachel recommended and that study on DBT and recidivism rates. By the way, they did find a correlation. You can access those by swiping up on the cover to hear more episodes, subscribe or head over to impactfashionnyc.com slash blog slash podcast. While you're there, feel free to check out what's new in the world of size inclusive modest fashion. If you enjoyed this episode and want to help more people hear it, leave a review with your favorite part from this or any other episode. The episode art was designed by Michelle Moses, original music composed by Nissan Fetman. This episode was produced and hosted by me, Rifki Itzkowitz. Catch me on Instagram and Facebook at impact.fashion.myc. As always, here's to making an impact together.